I'm Sarah Lippman. Welcome to Torah Imecha Nach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today, we will be learning Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles, Volume 1, Chapter 11. Many of the principles in today's class are based on the teachings and principles for teaching of Rabbi Moshe Eisenman of Baltimore in his magnificent commentary in the art scroll Divrei Hayamim and in many recorded classes for which I am deeply grateful. All errors and misunderstandings are my own. Chapter 11 opens just following the tragic deaths of Shaul and his sons. Representatives of the Jewish nation come to David in Hebron to acknowledge his kingdom and express their trust in his leadership. Verses 1-3 Vayikavtsu chol Yisrael el David Hebrona And all of Israel gathered to David in Hebron, Lamor to say to him, Hine atzmecha uvesarcha anachnu. Behold, we are your very bones and flesh. Gamtmol gamshilshom, even for a while past. Gambios Shaul melech, even while Shaul was the king. Ata hamotzi vehamevi es Yisrael. It was you who led us in and brought us safely home. This is a beautiful illustration of classical Jewish emuna, trust. It's trust based on knowledge. And we know, the people go on to say, that Hashem has said, that you shall shepherd my nation Israel, and that you shall be the ruler over my nation Israel. Our sages teach in the Midrash Shmos Rabbah, God does not elevate a person to greatness until he first checks him in small aspects. The Midrash goes on to say that there are two examples of this, with King David and with Moshe Rabbeinu, two of the greatest leaders in history. Hashem tested David with sheep. When David was responsible for the flocks, he was careful to graze them in the wilderness to ensure that they weren't stealing pasturage from private land. And thus God says to David, I have found you to be ne'eman, trustworthy, in leading the flocks of sheep. Come now, lead my own flock, my children. This is a good principle for us to know. God allows us to prove our consistency, our honesty, and responsibility in the small areas of our lives. Once we've proven our trustworthiness privately, with no audience, we've shown that it's real, and we're ready to be entrusted with things that are much bigger. We're struck by the very visceral connection the people feel to David. Behold, we are your very bones and flesh. Rabbeinu Bachya, in his commentary on Parshas Chaye Sarah, says that the city is called Hevron because it is there that souls connect with their root, Hevron from the word Lechaber, to connect. Rabbi Abatzvi Naiman, in his book Landscapes of the Spirit, writes, Evidently, the cave of Machpelah in Hevron connects the physical and spiritual worlds. It is perhaps for this reason that it lies in Hebron, related to the word chibur, connection. The commentary Minchas Arev at the very opening of Divrei Hayamim chapter 1 says that the book opens with Adam, she'ikar sefer zenichtav bishvil yichos shal David, because the main goal of this book is to document the genealogy of King David. Therefore, it begins with Adam, but we have to say, Adam is the original ancestor of everyone on the planet. Why would that be a particularly appropriate place to begin the genealogy of King David? 
This is Divrei Hayamim. It's where genealogy is literally about the cause and effects of people's lives as they intersect and impact on one another. So Divrei Hayamim begins with Adam because Adam is the starting point for King David quite literally. Shnosaf shall David, Hayami Shnosaf shall Adam, says the Midrash and Bamit Baraba. David's 70 years of life were quite literally taken from the years of Adam. Adam was created to live a thousand-year lifespan. He lived 930 years. What happened to the remaining 70? Adam gave 70 years to David HaMelech, who was born with only three hours to live. This midrash is incredible. Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir points out that in David's accomplishments, his ultimate ancestor, Adam HaRishon's life, finds its completion and the fulfillment that it missed originally due to the sin of eating from the tree in Eden. So David isn't just descended from Adam HaRishon. At some level, his life is Adam's life, continued and completed. David, carrying the soul of Adam, has the unique ability to hold all of his people in his heart. They are him. He is us. Behold, we are your very self. We are your flesh and blood. Verses 4 through 9. Immediately, first thing, David heads to Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, where there remains a Yevusi tribe living. Why did David immediately set his attention on establishing his base in Yerushalayim just as soon as he was crowned as king? First of all, the Torah commands in Dvarim chapter 12, Leshichno Sidrishu, that we must seek out tangible awareness of God's presence in the place which he has chosen. When David was at a low point in his life, pursued by Shaul, he fled to the prophet Shmuel's home for advice. David and Shmuel ended up spending the entire night following the clues provided in the Torah, and they were able to identify Har HaMoria in Yerushalayim as the chosen location. And so, says Radak, as soon as David was recognized as the true king of the entire nation, Hashem inspired the thought in his heart to go take care of unfinished business in Yerushalayim. He, ear Hashem, Jerusalem is the city of God. It is the city with which he has chosen to associate his holy name. When the Jews entered Israel under the leadership of Yehoshua, Jerusalem was actually twin cities, a Canaanite city and a Yevusi city on adjacent hills. You can see a hint of this in the end of the name, Yerushalayim, that ayim suffix means a pair, two in a set. During the initial conquest, the Canaanite city of Yerushalayim was conquered when their army joined in attacking the Jewish army. However, the other part of Jerusalem remained in Yevusi control for hundreds more years until David came to power. It is now that God inspires David, representing a newly united Jewish people, to establish himself in Yerushalayim, so that the king chosen by God will rule over the nation chosen by God in the city chosen by God. David the king, Yisrael the nation, and Yerushalayim the city, they all share a common role. Each is associated with God. Each has been chosen by God. Each has the capacity to be the vehicle for making God's presence tangible in the physical world. It has taken a long time, almost 2,900 years, to get from the birth of Adam to this nexus where David, Yerushalayim, and the Jewish people intersect. The rest of human history begins at this moment in time. 
and David captured the fortress of Zion, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city round about, Min Hamilo, from the open space Ve'ad Hasaviv and to the surrounding area. And Yoav brought life back to the rest of the city. David grew steadily greater and greater, and Hashem was with him. The term Milo for an open space is not obvious to define. It's related to the word to fill. Thus, the Vilna Gaon explains Milo as a type of an outer rampart, a steep embankment or wall filled with dirt that forms the outermost line of defense around a fortified city or a fortress. There is also a distinction being made here between the word Mitsuda, fortress, and Mitsad. The Malbim translates Mitsad as a defensible peak, a higher mountaintop whose dominant position makes it stronger and more inherently defensible. He identifies this Mitsad as Hartzion, Mount Zion. The Mitsuda is the man-made construction, the fortress, that is built on top of the Mitsad high point. Starting in verse 10, and continuing through the end of the chapter at verse 47, we have an extensive list of the mighty men who supported David in his kingship. Ve'ele Roshe Hagiborim. These are the chief mighty warriors, who supported him in his kingship. The list of names of David's retinue of Giborim, mighty warriors, between verses 10 and 41 are nearly identical to the parallel listing in the second volume of the book of Shmuel. The list of names that appear in verses 41 through 47 are unique to Divrei Hayamim. We cannot help but notice the constant sets of three in this passage. There are groups of three people, shalosh, captains called shalishim, groups of 30, shloshim, conquering 300 shloshmeos, enemies in battle, there is also a cryptic reference to Benayahu ben Yehoyada's battle with a lion, Biyom HaShaleg, on a day of snow. Sheleg is a word very notable for being made all of threes, the letter Shin equaling 300, the letter Lamed equaling 30, and the letter Gimel equaling 3. Unfortunately, despite the obvious signaling, the significance of the number 3 as used here is unknown to us. We've seen lists and lists of family genealogies telling us how we got from there to here. We've seen lists and lists of Levium and Kohanim continuing faithfully in the roles of their ancestors. But what are we meant to learn from lists and lists of Giborim, mighty warriors? And it's difficult to imagine, in any case, that the Torah is singing the praises of people for their physical prowess or their brute force in battle. Since when is any physical quality the object of the Torah's praise? We have a statement from the Vilna Gaon here that provides a clue. He says that there are 36 Giborim listed in this chapter, and they were their generation's 36 tzaddikim, righteous people, upon whom the world's existence depends. The Mishnah in Avos cites Benzoma's statement, Ezehu Gibor, who is mighty and strong. Hakovish es Yitzro, one who can conquer his own natural inclinations. As the verse in Mishlei says, Tov erechapayim migibor. Patience is preferable to strength. Umoshel berucho miloked ir. And one who can conquer his feelings is more powerful than one who can conquer a city. So if strength is going to be measured in muscle power, you're only as strong as the last person you beat up. 
As soon as someone lands a punch on you, now you're weaker and he's stronger. Thus, a superficial definition of strength is always going to be relative and subjective, and also not under your own control, and thus not to your credit, because it's a function of someone else's strength or lack thereof. Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz, in about the year 1800, in his book Tiferes Yisrael, says, The real strength of any warrior is really his focus and his courage. He doesn't become afraid. He's using his strength to achieve a higher goal. He doesn't allow himself to get too worried about getting hurt. He focuses on achieving his mission. If someone lashes out at others, strikes at them physically, he can only conquer their outside, the superficial exterior. Someone who can control his temper and his patience has made a deeper conquest. He's conquered the whole person. The real gavura, the real strength required to win a fight, is the strength of self-discipline. David HaMelech himself defines Gvura, strength, in Tehillim chapter 103. Gibori koach osei dvaro. Those who have mighty power are those who do God's word. Here we have a straightforward definition. Mighty people, giborim, are those who are mighty in God's word. They are mighty in Torah. With this, says Rav Moshe Eisman, we can now understand a surprising pattern in the way that the Talmudic sages consistently read references in Tanakh to warriors, weapons, and swords. Again and again, sometimes as the drash, the deeper meaning, sometimes as the pshat, the straightforward meaning, the sages understand military references to be referring to Torah study. Sometimes they even find that the context demands Torah study as the primary metaphorical reading altogether. So, for example, in Tehillim chapter 45, Chagor Harbacha al Yerech Gibor, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, Hodcha Vahadarecha, your majesty and your splendor. The Talmud in Shabbos 63a reads this verse as instruction to the Torah scholar to be constantly equipped with an arsenal of Torah knowledge, just as a warrior must always be prepared and carry his weapons at his side. And in Shir Hashirim, King Shlomo's 60 giborim, 60 mighty soldiers who surrounded his bed, holding swords, experienced in war to guard against fears of the night, are understood by the Gemara in Chagiga 14a as gripping the sword of tradition, experienced in the Battle of Torah. And for an example here in Devei Hayamim, in verse 11 we read, Ve'ele mispar ha-giborim asher David. These are the numbers of the mighty soldiers who were with David. Yeshav'am ben Chachmoni Rosh HaShalishim. Yeshav'am, the son of Chachmoni, was the head of the captains. These are the number of mighty men who were with David. Yeshav'am, the one who sat before the nation, in other words, the head of the Sanhedrin, was called Ben Chachmoni, a son of wisdom. He loved wisdom so much that he would go sit and learn even after coming home from intense battle. He wouldn't miss a day of learning, even when exhausted. And in verses 15 through 19, a very odd story, David expresses a wish to drink from the waters of Beis Lechem, his hometown, from the water reservoir, Asher Bashar, that is at the gate. But Beis Lechem was then under Plishti control, and so his three mightiest leaders broke their way into the Plishti camp to draw water from the pit, Asher Bashar, again, which was at the gate. But when they brought him the water, David couldn't bring himself to drink it so casually after the risk they took, and so he used it instead as an offering to God. Our sages understand 
David wished to drink water. In other words, he was thirsty for words of Torah. And he sought that Torah from the reservoir of Torah in Beis Lechem, which is at the gate. That would be the city's Sanhedrin, its halachic high court, which always had its offices at the gates of the city. David, himself a great scholar, needed guidance in clarifying a halacha, a Torah law that related to the battle at hand. His three giborim forced their way through enemy lines to reach the Sanhedrin. They posed the question, they received answers from the Sanhedrin, and brought the rulings back to David, who was horrified that they had taken such risks for a question that was not a matter of life and death. And therefore, David did not retell the ruling that they had brought back in their name. Rather than give him credit, he retold it anonymously. This is the understanding of the sages in Bavakama, page 60b, and Yerushalmi Sanhedrin 2. Another example, in verse 22, Benayahu ben Yehoyada is described as ben Ishchayel, a valiant man, Rav Pe'alim, of many deeds, min Kavtzael, coming from Kavtzael. He is described as ben Ishchayel, a valiant warrior. He is also ben Ishchai, full of life, energized from within, vibrant. The Gemara in Brachos says ben Ishchai, it indicates that Benayahu's liveness was essential and unique quality of his personality. Benayahu has the perfect blend of qualities to be a gibor with David. He is vibrantly alive, full of Torah, and effective at getting things done. In verses 22 through 25, we learn of some of Benayahu ben Yehoyada's exploits. He smote the two mighty lions of Moab, and he smote a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He was an illustrious warrior among the three mightiest of David's men. And David appointed him to be in command of the loyal followers, which means, say the sages, that David appointed him to be the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva over the students of Torah. Benayahu went down and smote a lion on a snowy day. Some stages understand this to mean that he went down to a mikvah to immerse himself on a snowy day. He conquered his lion, his inclination not to do it, breaking up the ice and plunging in. Other sages understand this to mean that he studied the entire volume of Torah's Kohanim on a short, cold winter's day. Benayahu was a person of such vibrant spirit, Beni Shai. He was so mightily alive with Torah and with the inner strength of character that he was literally unstoppable in battle. This is the nature of the warriors who fought at David's side, as David built a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom in which fighting is only for the sake of God and the sake of justice, and the mightiest warriors come to the battlefield straight from the Beit Midrash, the study hall. This is a new kingdom. This is a new world. Imagine if our world were led only by good people, by mighty people, dedicated only to doing what is good and right in God's eyes. That would indeed be a new world, a new kingdom. Rabbi Hanina ben Antignos teaches in Kedushan 76b, anyone who is written down as a warrior or soldier of King David may be presumed to be a righteous and holy man. Says the Vilna Gaon, David's warriors are primarily heroes of spirit. They are all named. They are his champions. They are an integral part of his rule. They characterize his mission as king. 
And so our sages knew that when scripture speaks of warriors and swordsmen, it's not concerned with military exploits. It's the wars and battles of the mind and soul that count. Were these Giborim warriors? Yes, of course they were. But their ability to fight isn't worth preserving for posterity in a book of Tanakh. Strength of character, on the other hand, is. The heroic deeds recounted in this chapter refer to heroic, outstanding achievements in Torah. And thus it is that in Divrei Hayamim, the distinctions between warriors and scholars seem blurred. More than blurred, they're fused within the personality of the Giborim themselves. This is expressed above all in the image of David HaMelech himself. David holds within himself the leader of all the mighty warriors, the king, and also a musician expressing the deepest emotions in music and poetry. There is no contradiction. Both sides of David coexisted. Both aspects of David were true expressions of a unified, whole, and focused personality, because when your overarching mission is clear and unified, there is no conflict. Thank you for learning together with me, Le'ilui Nishmas Rose Foreman, Rachel Rachel Bas Arye Leib, and Rachel Zeitlin.